The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Each week this summer, we're looking at a feature in God's Word, a feature in the Bible. Not only have we been looking at right things we're to believe about the Bible, like the Bible is true, and our final authority in determining what is right and wrong, but it also shows us what it looks like to have a wholehearted desire and delight for God's Word. Whenever we truly desire and delight and depend on something, isn't it true that that creates real frustration and sometimes real angst in our our heart? Like when we really want something. You know, I think that strong desire, when we desire something really, really strong, it creates this kind of frustration because sometimes our desire doesn't match up with our practice all the time. You know what I mean by that? The things that we want, we don't always have. And the things that we want the most, if we don't have them, that can create frustration and fatigue. Think about it. If you desire to be a mother who, who juggles numerous responsibilities throughout your day, and you still want to, throughout your day, to pour your life into your kids with patience and gentleness. And at the end of the day, you realize that you have failed miserably at that. It's frustrating. What about if you desire to be at a, the top of your particular profession? You desire f- pr- promotion or advancement in your career, and you work really hard day and night at that. You put in extra hours. You want to advance in your profession, and you seem to be at a plateau where you seem to keep hitting obstacles to get to that. It's frustrating because you want that. And maybe the easiest thing for understand is a desire for love. Somebody or to have that, that companion with, and you desire that so deeply in your heart, and the lack of it is frustrating. It's a burden. It's a a letdown. We actually see this in Psalm 119. We see this frustration that comes from not being able to actually have what we desire so strongly. Look at just uh, the first and last verse of actually the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. Verse 1 says, blessed are those who are blameless. Blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. And so verse 1 is starting out saying, this is, this is great. Those who find happiness are those who are blameless. And then the last verse of this same song is what? I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. It says, I remember them, I know them, and yet I do not follow them as I should. I am a lost sheep. And this is really the theme of this whole book. This, this delight, this desire, this pursuit in something that is of utmost love of our psalmist. And throughout it, he says, I don't even get that. I'm not even following that as I should. And it is painful. It's a painful realization. So there is this sigh of disappointment over what we don't have that we long for. And without Christ, there is no relief for the failures of missing God's commands or uh, disobeying God's commands. And there is no satisfaction for our desires. And so this morning, we're looking at desiring, delighting, and depending on Christ. 
And listen, I, I know this is not something I'm supposed to do when you're, when you're trying to be an effective communicator, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give away the cookies right at the beginning. I mean, I'm just going to tell you everything I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this morning right up front. I'm not going to lead you up to that suspense. I'm going to give away the cookies. And here it is. We are so disobedient that Jesus had to die for us. But God has planned so much for us that he is glad to die for us. The thing that we desire so much, we have failed at. And yet God has died for us and has desired to die for us and was glad to die for us because of what he is, we are saved not only from, but also saved to. That's how we'll frame this teaching this morning, looking at what Christ has saved us from, but also what he has saved us to. Let's look at, just, let's look at the first eight verses of Psalm 119. We're going to go to the, the, the introduction to this psalm. I know we're almost done with this whole series, and we're finally getting to the first verse, okay? Verses 1 through 4 sound really great. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. These sound so great. I mean, they're describing how a person comes into true blessedness and joy and happiness in the Lord. There's a roadmap for us. How great is it that the Bible gives us a roadmap? Here, do you want to have blessing? Do you want to be happy? Do you want to have joy in your life? Then, then be perfect. Be blameless. Walk in the Lord and don't miss a step. How can we be blessed? We can be blessed by being blameless. But the problem is we are not blameless. We are full of blame. How can we be blessed? Well, walk in the, in the law of the Lord. But the problem is we go astray. We are like sheep that wander from God's law. How can, how can we be blessed? Well, keep his testimonies. And we don't keep them. We break them all the time in our thoughts and words and deeds. Throughout the day, numerous times of the day. How can we be blessed? Well, we can seek God with all of our heart, our whole entire heart an undivided and devoted attention to God. Well, the problem is we are divided, and we occasionally wander in our thoughts. We, we, we love God often half-heartedly. And so I feel like verses 1 to 4 is like a riddle. You know, there's a riddle that goes, what is black and white and red all over? It's a skunk with a sunburn, right? Well, come on, people. You're with me, right? Well, who is blameless? Who lives in habitual holiness? Who seeks after God with their whole heart? This is the riddle. And this is the, the answer to our happiness. Who is this person? Well, the answer is no one. None of us. Not a single person here. Of course no one. That's, the Bible. That's what the Bible says. No one is righteous. Not even one. No one seeks after God the way that we should. You know, God desired so much to have a, have a presence and community and communion with his people. And they were, they were not holy. They were sinful. They were they were unclean, and he desired to dwell among them. And so he instructed Moses to build a tabernacle. It was a place of dwelling. It was a tent, literally, where God could dwell in them. And, he would, and, and, and the priests would, Moses and the priests would go into this tabernacle to commune with God, to communicate with God, and God would communicate with him, and he would relay that message to the people. And God gave the most strict and detailed explanation about how to build this tabernacle. It had to be perfect to God's specs. 
the, down to what kind of animal hair to use for the linens, for the curtains, down to the measurements of the tabernacle, down to also the cleanliness and rules that the priests had to obey. They had to be physically clean, morally clean. They had to bathe themselves repeatedly to go into the presence of God to be without blemish. And God gave such a detail for every inch of that tabernacle, except one thing. And this is so, it's bizarre at first glance, but it means something so profound. He gave no instruction to the floor. And in fact, he said, let there be no floor to the tabernacle. And so you come into this beautiful place, and God says, you cannot come in here unless you are perfectly clean. And the floor is dirt. And so every time the priests come in, they would be clean from head to toe. And they were under constant awareness of their need of being, but my feet are dirty. And even in everything that I do, when I clean myself, I clean my feet, and I take these baths, I stand before you with dirt on my feet. See, God gives us a, a standard to live by. And we've already learned that His standards are just, they're right, they're perfect, they're good. They're appropriate for us. And so here's what the psalmist is doing by giving us this, this riddle right up front. Like, who can do this? He's showing our need. The law shows us our need. It shows us God's ultimate standard. And here's the good question. Well, if these standards are perfection and no one, not one of us meets this perfect standard, then, then why does God give us a standard at all? Why does He give us such rules to live by that, that make it impossible for us to obey? Have you ever wondered that? If God wants me to be holy, then why does He give so many difficult rules that He knows I'm not going to obey? Just give me a nod if, if you're like, I've, I've thought about that. God, I would do this differently. I would, I would give easier things to follow. Well, the answer is actually found in the New Testament. It may be a, an answer to this question that many of you have never even heard before. And it may even surprise you, the answer to this question. And I want to show you, it's found in Galatians chapter 3, 19-22. Paul asks, why then the law? He's asking that same question. Why, why the law? If, we, if God gives us the law, this is the way to holiness, and we can't obey it, well then why is it there in the first place? And, and he says, is it contrary to the promise of God? And he says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Here's the question. If God promises love and, and blessing to us and then he gives us rules that are so hard to follow and every one of us break those things, then why give it? And the answer is that the primary purpose of God's law and His commands is not to lead us to salvation through obedience, but actually to lead us into sin so that there is no hope apart from Christ. It is, have you ever have picked up the Bible and said, I don't like reading the Bible because every time I read its commands and its standards, I feel like a loser. The answer is, that's exactly what it's supposed to do. 
It is supposed to show you your need, to reveal your need. It is supposed to set a standard so high that you can say, I can't do this. There must be some other way. And then it responds with, oh, but there is. The law of God comes to us in order to increase our offense so that Jesus would be our only hope. The law puts human beings to death so that we could be brought to life by the grace of God. And when we see it, it is here when we see these commands and see our lack of ability to fulfill these commands, we see a glimpse of Jesus. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus stands ready to wash our feet. You may remember that story in John 13 where Jesus was with his friends the night before he was killed and he began to unsaddle his friend's shoes and he begins to wash their feet. And Peter says, no, Jesus, don't do this. Like, Don't humiliate yourself. Don't lower yourself to the point of a servant to clean my feet. I should be the one cleaning your feet. And Jesus says, If I do not wash your feet, you have no part in me. If you do not let me clean you, the parts of you that that cannot be cleaned by your own washing, why should we delight and depend and desire Jesus? Because He is the only solution for those who fail at verses 1 to 4. I mean, who of you can look at that and say, I am blameless? I follow God with my whole heart. I keep his testimonies. I keep them diligently. I do no wrong. And Jesus says, I need to wash you. I need to save you from your failures. Making resolutions, whether they're New Year's or any other time of the year, making resolutions are not sufficient to meet the standards that God has given to us. There is no righteousness that makes us right apart from the righteousness of Jesus. We have been like sheep who have gone astray. We have gone our own way. But the Bible says that God has laid upon Him the iniquities of us all. Laid upon Christ our sins. We have been cursed by the law because we're kind of in this prison of our own failure and we can't claw our way out of it. And the Bible says that The demands were so heavy for us, too heavy for us to get out. But the Bible says that Jesus redeemed us from the curse. How? By becoming a curse for us. Becoming our sin. Taking on our sin. We need Jesus. Because apart from His grace and His substitute for us, we remain under this curse. And are spiritually dead. Unable to reconcile ourselves to God. So this is why it's called the gospel. This is why it's called the good news that God has mercy on sinners, that God has mercy on those who are breakers of verse 1 to 4, those who look at their life and say, I have fallen so short of those commands and standards for happiness. And so we can say, I'm a spiritual failure, but thank God for Jesus. Thank God for his mercy on me. So God, we need Jesus because he saves us from something. And that's usually when we think about the blessing of of 
Christ and his life and death and sacrifice for us, dying in our place, we think about what he saved us from. He saved us from God's anger and wrath and punishment. He saved us from all the debt that we owe God because of, of, of our sin and our failure to obey his commands. But did you know that there's still more than that to the gospel? Now, now think of this, this phrase. Many Christians believe in the gospel in something like this. They might say, I'm a spiritual failure, but praise God. Jesus came to save spiritual failures like me. I cannot obey God's commands as he instructed me to, not even for a second. I never loved God with all my heart. I never loved my neighbor as I should. Even my righteous deeds, the Bible says, are like filthy rags. I'm a screwed up sinner through and through. But the good news is God saved me because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Great news. And, it, and what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that phrase? And I'll be honest, if I heard some of you say that phrase, I would rejoice with you, I would celebrate with you, I would be praising God for the grace that has come to your, to your hearts, celebrating that you've put your rest in the completed work of Christ. But did you know that there's more to it than that? That if we are to be passionate in our pursuit of God, we must establish holiness. We must establish that holiness, obedience, is actually not only important, but it's possible. It sounds humble to say, I can't obey God, but thank you for Jesus. It sounds humble to do that. We want to be humble, but do you see? Look at what he says here as he makes a shift. Look at verse 5. He has just been done saying, who can do this? Look at verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. I know that I fail, but oh, that I might that I would be that person that keeps that standard, that I would be that person that pursues holiness and obedience even though I've failed. He has this desire, this longing, this frustration because he wants it so bad and he knows that he has failed. But he still runs for it, pursues it. Do you see what happened here? There is an, an acknowledgement of shame and failure. There's a concession that he has failed to live up to what God has commanded, but he's still longing to obey, to keep God's word. And why is this? Is he confused about grace and, is, and the law and works? Is he confused about how we come into a relationship with God, how we're forgiven of our sins? Is he thinking, well, thank you for your grace, but just in case that's not enough, I'm going to keep working really hard. I don't think that that's the case. I think he is showing us how grace and desire for holiness work together. Remember, Christ saves us from something that is so beautiful, but Christ also saves us to something. We need Jesus to save us from our sin of breaking God's commands and to save us to a life of keeping those commands. And we need his grace for both. So Christ saves us to something. What does he save us to? He lists these in the next few verses. He walks through these things. The first thing is he saves us to holiness. In verse 5, he saves us to holiness, that my ways may be steadfast, that, that I would keep your statutes, that I would be holy and upright, that I would be obedient. So this longing is prompted by an admiration of a life that could be like verse 1 to 4 an admiration for life that could 
walk with God in his ways and pursue him with a whole heart and be blameless in all that he does. It's a wanting for a life that is full of joy and hopeful. Contemplation of this righteous character. The next thing that he saves us to is he saves us to freedom. Freedom. Sin brings shame and Christ sets us free from shame, from our sin and into joy. That I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. So he's desiring to be set free to a life that is free from this condemnation and shame of failure, but has his eyes set on holiness. Verse 7, I'll praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Christ saves us to worship. When does worship happen? Worship happens when we've gone through this process of the truth truly setting in. Worship happens when God gives us commands and we see and recognize our failure to keep those commands. And those, that failure brings shame in our heart. And that shame motivates us to prayer and calling out for mercy. And Jesus' grace and his solution are, are clearly embraced. And then we respond in worship. Worship is a response to what God has done and who he is. Did you know there, there really is a kind of praise and worship to God that he hates? And it is a worship that comes from a heart that pretends, pretends to have acknowledged their sin and trusted in God, and yet they don't. God hates that kind of worship. He says, I will praise you in my learning of righteousness. So we actually are called to be theologians and also worship leaders, worship directors. We're called to be preachers and musicians. We're called to know God in truth and respond in what we know through affection and admiration. We worship as we study, and our worship is a result of our study of God. What else does he call us to and save us to? Verse 8, lastly, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. We're called He saves us to a humble dependence on Christ, a dependence on his fellowship for all of our needs. He says, I will keep, I will keep your statutes. I will keep your word. Don't forsake me. Now, I want you to know he's not saying this. I want you to pick up a tone here because he's not saying this. I promise I'll be good. Please don't leave me. I promise I won't mess up. Please don't forsake me. There is no force of his character. There is no gritting of his teeth. There is no saying, I hope that this is accomplished. Rather, he's saying, I'm resolved in my heart and in my head and the depth of my will to depend on you. It is a blend of humility and desire. Saying, I delight in you. I depend on you. I desire you. It is a, it is a giving up of his whole life as a, as a sacrifice, an offering to God and saying, All of my life, I am directing towards you. Look at where we've we've been so far. How we started and and where we ended up. We've covered a lot of experience just in eight verses. A lot of growth in verse 1 through 8. A lot of growth that we've seen just in this psalmist's life. We've covered a lot. Verse 1 begins with an admiration of the goodness of God's standards. 
his standard of perfection. Verse 5 is kind of a, a sigh of shame. It's really a confession of, of, of recognizing that he falls so short of what God has commanded. And verse 8 ends with this burning longing and pleading for God's presence, a desire for friendship with him and fellowship with him. And it's an intense pain. It's a recognition of an intense pain if he doesn't have that. If we cannot obey God's laws perfectly, what's the point of working so hard to be obedient? Have you ever felt that way? Well, if I can't obey this, what's the point of even trying? I believe the the Westminster Confession of Faith summarizes God's answer to this question well. And here it is. He says, Our good works and obedience are accepted by God, not because they are without flaws, but because God is pleased through Christ to accept our obedience. God loves and is moved heart, by our heartfelt attempts to obedience. God loves and desires our obedience. In Christ, our position with God is immovable. God does not forsake his children. But our communion with God is not immovable. We can be under God's divine displeasure, even being in a state of his perfect love. He never ceases to love us, even when he disciplines us. God can be displeased with his children. God will never utterly forsake us. And God's grace will keep us keeping his law. But we are not made alive only in Christ. We are to live in Christ. You may delight in God's salvation and depend on Christ for your forgiveness, but do you do the same for what he has called you to, for your obedience? for your fellowship and communion with Him, for your holiness? Do you pour over the Scriptures and say, I fall short in that, but man, do I want that. And I'm going to strive for that in all that I do. You know what I've learned about desire? I've learned that strong desire actually breeds more desire. I mean, strong desire kind of, desire is pregnant, and it gives birth to more desire It procreates. Do you desire Christ? Do you desire Christ to be, do you look to him to be saved and forgiven because of your failure to keep his commands? Do you desire that? And if you say, yes, I desire that, then I would ask, how else does that make you feel? What else does that make you desire? Well, what do you mean? I thought that was it. I thought that was the end. Just like desiring his sacrifice for me and I'm, I'm good. No, but that true desire produces more desire. Well, what kind of desire? Frustration. Are you frustrated when you don't obey God? Frustration because you love Him so much and desire to be like Him so much in how you feel and how you act that when you look at yourself, you are frustrated at your habits, at your thoughts, at your sin. 
Well, what else should I feel? Diligence. Diligence to pursue his ways. Working. A grace-motivated and spirit-led work to please God. What else should I feel? Joy. Joy in his promises and as you rest in them. Thinking, man, these are a lot of feelings. Yes, this is what it looks like to have a heartfelt, wholehearted desire for God. That we are just not feeling glad to be saved, but that we are feeling everything in our heart towards Christ to pursue Him. A healthy desire for Christ will always produce this complex array of frustration and longing and joy and hope. That's what we see in this psalm. He saves us to the very things that we failed to do on our own, but can now do through Christ and His power in us. Do you believe that? You have failed at keeping God's standards, but you can be obedient because of the power of Christ in you. And this pleases God. Psalm 119, 1-8 kind of outlines how you and I should begin our every day. Here is who you are and how you've commanded me to live. I fall short on every command. Jesus is my perfect older brother who lived the life I should have lived and died the death that I deserved. Therefore, I will praise him with all of my heart and long for him and pursue him and desire him and depend on him depending on Him for our, for our salvation and depending on Him for our growth in holiness. Can you live like that today? Can you start and finish every day like that? That is what it looks like to have a wholehearted delight in Christ. And not a single tick on our, on our line of our life from God's justification to our sanctification to our glorification with Him is received without grace, apart from His grace. We need Him for every bit of it. Let's run after that with great emotion, with great frustration, with great joy in all He's promised for us. Let's pray together.